50. So it's the 50th prayer in the book of Psalms. There's 150 total. This one's found on page 526 of the Bibles nearby. Um, If you were going to fill out a contact card, the pen is there. This is a good time to grab that pen and be ready to fill that out too. So 526 is the page, and it's going to be on the screen as well. This is God's Word. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before Him. And around Him, a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that He may judge His people. Gather to me this consecrated people who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim His righteousness, for He is a God of justice. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. I do not eat the flesh of bulls, or do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice, thank offerings to God, fulfill your vows to the Most High, and call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will honor me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips? You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. When you see thieves, you join with them. You throw in your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You sit and testify against your brother and slander your own mother's son. When you did these things, I kept silent. You thought I was exactly like you. But I now arraign you and set my accusations before you. Consider this, who you, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with no one to rescue Those who sacrifice, thank offerings, honor me. And to the blameless, I will show my salvation. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our God of grace, as we enter into this place and we bring the diversity of emotional and experiential um, postures and moods as we bring different experiences and different stories and different temperaments into this place, at this point, we're looking for your voice to pierce through all of that and to speak words that we find compellingly loving and good for our lives. So whether we come and we are, uh, we are front-loaded with doubts and questions or whether we have have just some some joy and thankfulness or whether we feel disconnected and dull this morning. Whatever place we find ourselves, would you pierce through 
with your love. Would you help us to be able to relax enough to admit that we're more of a mess than we want others to know and then to see that we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. And may that, that failure and that love mingled together, the reality of our imperfection and our um, definitive love that you bring to our imperfect lives, may that, those two co- seemingly contradictory things combine in a catalytic way to free our hearts of the things that enslave us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so here we are, thanks to Psalm 50, here we are in God's courtroom. Did you catch that? Did you catch the way that Psalm kind of just paints these images that we're before the judge? In, one, when, in the beginning, he's summoning, you know, the summons are going out in verses 1 through 6. In verse 7, he's, he's, the testimonies are beginning to come in. Testimonies against the defendant, right? They're coming in in verse 7. Verse 21, there's talk of arraigning us, and the accusations again are coming out. And then in the end, verses 22 and 23, we have this, the consequences, the potential sentencing of the defendant. So here we are, and we say in our day-to-day life, we're used to our friends saying this, we often say this, we say, well, I'm not judgy, right? Stop being so judgmental, right? One, one friend I uh, once had, always had this phrase he used, he combined these two words together, and he talked about how someone might be judgmental critical, judgmental critical, it's kind of like his own hybrid word that expresses that feeling, right, that we have that... Um, we, we really don't want to be seen as getting into other people's business with our opinions about right and wrong. Yeah, that's, 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 that's my world. Stay out of it, right? And, and we, we want to respect that, and we don't want to be judgy. Um, at least that's where we are culturally. We're uncomfortable with all this judging. Um, so consequently... We suddenly find ourselves in a realm where, and this, is, this, is, this has not always been true, this is, most of history this has not been true, but suddenly we're in a realm where the idea that God would have a trait connected to him of being judging suddenly is found to be really offensive. This is historically very new, and yet it's, we feel it deeply. And if, if you don't, maybe, maybe, maybe there's a chance that you don't feel that deeply and that maybe you're okay with God being God who brings judgment. Um, you've got to at least concede um, that your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers and your family members are very on guard against a God who's judging. It's, in fact, it's become one of the top five reasons why people will say, I, can't, I can never believe in the biblical faith. I can never become a Christian because... This seem, there seems to be this punishing God of judgment who's going to send people to eternal punishment if they don't behave religiously in the correct way. So someone brought this, uh, someone brought this challenge to Tim Keller. He writes this book called The Reason for God. And he describes, he says, in one of my after-service, he's, he's also a preacher, Um, He says, in one of my after-service discussions, a woman told me that the very idea of a judging God was offensive. And I said, why aren't you offended by the idea of a forgiving God? She looked puzzled. I continued, 
you know, Tim Keller is very confrontational. He's not, not afraid to just kind of turn it around. He says, I continue, I respectfully urge you to con- consider your cultural location when you find the Christian teaching about hell offensive. I went on to point out that secular Westerners get upset by the Christian doctrines of hell, but they find biblical teaching about turning the other cheek and forgiving enemies appealing. I then asked her to consider how someone from a very different culture sees Christianity. In traditional societies, the teaching about turning the other cheek makes absolutely no sense. It offends people's deepest instincts about what is right. For them, the doctrine of a God of judgment, however, is no problem at all. That society is repulsed by aspects of Christianity that Western people enjoy and are attracted by the aspects that secular Westerners can't stand. Why, I concluded, should Western cultural sensibilities be the final court in which to judge other Christianity is, uh, whether Christianity is valid? I asked the woman gently, I don't know if you should try this with your neighbors, but I, I asked this woman gently whether she thought her culture superior to non-Western ones. She immediately answered, no. Well then, I asked, why should your culture's objections to Christianity trump theirs? All right, so that's one person's, maybe that's a little bit of confrontational approach. Um, <laughs> to uh, attacking these, these issues, and maybe that's your style, it's not necessarily mine, but nonetheless, there exists, and it's, it's worthy of challenge, but it exists there, and let's not, you know, I don't mean to belittle the fact that it's, it's a real visceral uh, feeling that has a lot of truth to it. We're very touchy about God's judgment. We're very touchy and sensitive to the idea that we might face God's furrowed brow, Right? With, with my kids, sometimes I intentionally put on a furrowed brow, right? Even so, sometimes the thing they do that's dangerous or, or, or just not what we want them to do is sometimes very funny, and you have to hold back a, a laugh and at the same time put the furrowed brow on, of the furrowed brow of judgment, right? We're very afraid of God's furrowed brow. So, why talk about it? Why, why, did, I, why did I choose Psalm 50, or why did the... The, the lectionary, the church calendar, choose this psalm for us to talk about today. Well, here's the claim. Here's the countercultural claim that we actually need. Um, tell me if you buy into this. We need God's courtroom. We need the courtroom of God to be able to dis- fully discover the love of God. We actually need to experience this, this aspect of God the judge in order to experience God the loving Savior. There's a way in which you can't get a God, you can't come to the God of the Bible and just hope for one of those two things. The, judge, the justice side and the mercy, mercy side are always together. In fact, if you, our, our tendency is basically to choose the mercy side only, and so we basically construct a God that we think is going to be really good for us, a loving God who's like a grandpa in the clouds, smiling down at us saying, you know, I don't really care what you do as long as you have fun. Right? And that's that's sort of, practically speaking, that's the kind of God we like to create. I I actually don't know in the end if that's the most loving God. But we're going to enter the courtroom and find out. We're going to enter the courtroom. Are you ready? I promise. Trust me, this will be okay. We can get through this together. We're going to enter God's courtroom, and there's some proofs, there's some evidence, there's some exhibits to put before us to see if we can buy into this fact that you walk through the courtroom of God to get to the, the love of God. So first, exhibit A. Exhibit A. God is not judging your religious performance. Let that sink in. So exhibit A is... Uh, 
that God is not nitpicking and sitting around judging your religious performance. Let me, let me suggest where this comes from, or show you where this comes from. As we look at verse 8, and really it's verse, verse 8 all the way through verse um, 13, where there's this incredible point that's made. There's clearly a lot of robust religious behavior happening by the Israelites, those who were in covenant with God. There was a lot of robust religious behavior. They were really good at it. They, were, they had a shining record of religious obedience. And what God says, the whole point of this is, I don't need your sacrifices. I don't actually need all that. It's just kind of really quickly, just uh, exhibit A. I, you know what? That's actually not what it's all about. That's not what I'm going to nitpick here when you come into my courtroom. And why? why? So if he's not looking at you and he's not looking at Israel and nitpicking their religious performance, why is he so irritated? Why does this psalm kind of exude this courtroom where a judge is needed and there's this irritation? Why? Well, because the accusation is uh, pretty strong in this text. They're game playing. They're playing games with religion. They're manipulating the tools of the relationship with God to get their own way instead of getting God. They want, the, they want God's stuff, but they don't want God. And so he basically accuses them of being two-faced and going in and having a, a very active sacrificial system and a, an incredibly dead relationship with God, with his truth, and with justice. Um, this is how uh, one... Well, here we go. This is Tim Keller again. Tim, and, Tim Keller and Kathy Keller in this, in this, year, or this, this uh, walk through the songs. It's called The Songs of Jesus. And it's, he says this when he looks at this psalm. Verses 8 through 13 show people. says it shows uh, people who think their worship offerings are somehow doing God a favor. This is moralism. The idea that our ethical life and religious observance... Um, that with our ethical life and religious observance, we can put God in our debt. We can put God in our debt so that he owes us things. All right. And he says, examine your heart. Do you feel God owes you a better life? Do you obey him because you feel uh, you have to in order to get what you want or out of loving wonder for what he has done? You know, are you after it for your own ends or are you after it for God? And we, I mean... I got to tell you, this is probably the, one of the biggest spiritual issues that we have, that I have, that you have, that I, I run into when I talk to people, is that basically in, in one way or another, just look at it as church, church activities. You know, are, are you not tempted to think of um, church attendance? Are you uh, volunteering, um, giving money, uh, volunteering, um, serving the poor? Are you not thinking about all of these things in some way? Are you not tempted to think about them as um, doing something that will make God happy towards you? That will kind of flip the script and he'll, he'll love you. You can be assured you're doing enough. I mean, are you, you're, we're all tempted to do that, right? To secure God's approval. And Psalm 50 basically says this. If that's what you're doing, <laughs> you're kind of like a lawyer who's trying to get the judge in the hallway aside and slip him a couple of Benjamins so that, you know, you can get the verdict going your way. That's, that's, that's the picture in the courtroom of God. Let me tell you, church leaders and religious leaders, priests, rabbis, ministers, chaplains, we are the worst at this. We are the, tempted the most to be the person in your life that sits across the table from you 
and listens to you describe your life and your problems and to kind of squint our eyes and say, well, hmm, you know, I think you still got a lot of work to do. I, let me prescribe some more prayers. Let me prescribe some more religious duties. Let me prescribe some, prescribe some uh, Hail Marys and some volunteer activities and some tithing. I mean, we're just drawn into that. It's very hard not to do that. And what it turns out is that that, that, when you look at the Bible and God's judgment, and even some of you are really annoyed by God's anger, the fact that God might be angry, most of it, the harshest of it, comes at exactly that. You know, those who would, those not only who would play games with God, but that would teach and lead crowds of other people to do the same and say, yeah, this is exactly what we want to teach you to do, you know. Um, you know, but, uh, we're all kind of tempted to play games, but then there's people who are like coaches who are going to teach you how to play that game really well. And that's, in fact, you look at the Bible, you look at Je- some of Jesus' harshest words, and Jesus sounds a lot of times like a judge. He's got some harsh words, and what he says when he's talking about the religious leaders, he, he calls them um, whitewashed tombs, and he says, Woe to you, experts of the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered... And you have hindered those who were entering. Harsh words for those who play that game and teach others to do it. So here's the idea. Uh, Exhibit A says God's judgment in this psalm, and actually a lot of times in, in the Bible, is geared towards those who would get things wrong and lead others down the path of religious manipulation. So are you okay that God can judge that? Are we okay so far? <laughs> right? That's, maybe you're a little bit like, well, okay, that kind of judging. All right. I can sit with that. I can sit with a God who, who looks at that and says, no, that is wrong. All right, so we've got exhibit B as we move on through this passage. Exhibit B, the second proof of the need for the courtroom of God to get to the love of God, is verse 5. And verse 5 of Psalm 50 proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's looking... His main concern, his main burden is to get you back in relationship with him, to, to heal the relationship. So the word covenant comes in in this verse. It comes in elsewhere in the psalm. Covenant is a big word. He says, gather to me this consecrated people who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. So this judging God, most of all, his main concern is to reconnect with you. I mean, why, why in the first place do we even have the idea of God as judge? Why is he portrayed in Scripture? Uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't think for sure if someday you see God face to face after this life, I don't think he's going to be wearing a, a, a robe behind a bench with a gavel, but he's portraying himself that way for why? Why? For what reason? Why do we need this in the scriptural story? Because, because justice has been fractured. And the Christians, Christians, we talk about this as the biblical fall, when things were, were made good, but then they fell apart. So everything's kind of shattered. The cos- on a cosmic level, everything's shattered. All the good things are fractured, not working the way they should work. And we're in desperate need, desperate need of, of good judging, right? You see it in your, in your jobs. You see it in the newspaper. You see this, this, this imbalance of right and wrong and good and evil, and we, we, we desperately seek. A lot of you dedicate your lives to ways of healing exactly those kinds of injustices that you see, not to mention the little ones in your life that just really get under your skin, right? There's things, there's, there's ways that maybe you were let go of a job that just you go, what? What was going on there? There's w- things in your life 
that, um, that just represent a, really getting a raw deal, an injustice. It shouldn't have happened that way, and it did. And now you sit here, and it's just, it just kind of, it's tempting for that to just fester in your life. Do you feel things like that? Do you have that in your life? You've been given a raw deal in some way? Most of you have, I know. We need, we need, we desperately need some kind of like cosmic justice of the peace. We need good judges, right? We need something. And the biblically speaks, so that's, that's actually the Bible agrees with that and says, yes, there's a problem and God enters in as judge. But the biggest injustice of all, the biggest one that the Bible really deals with is what is answered by that one word covenant, is the fracturing and the injustice of Basically, God the Father being alienated and estranged from his children. And covenant is this strong, powerful word. It's like, a, it's like wedding vows. You know, it's that kind of like weighty thing where God enters in and says, I'm going to make a way for the fracture to be healed. I'm going to lead this. Even as you play your religious games, even as you're doing that, I'm not giving up on you. I'm going to enter in, and it's going to be my covenant, and it's going to last. It's going to, it's going to go through to the end. And he's gathering us, right? Um, so verse 5 really is like exhibit B, and it's this proof of saying, you know what, God's all about. You can't ignore it. Even, even when this harsh judging language comes up, the judge is really after his covenant with us. It's all about his covenant. It's kind of like, um, God's kind of like a, like some unusually emotionally strong wife who has been cheated on and who, who comes with, with a firm voice to her husband and says, remember our vows. Remember our vows. Let's get back to that. I'm not giving up on you. That's really like God. So, God the judge. That's what he's after. So, I'm imagining, I'm hoping that you're maybe still with me on this whole thing of God, God's courtroom. Um, Because he's judging religious manipulation, and in the end, his greatest goal, his end goal, is to just gather us into that loving, familial relationship where we are his children, and he's our father, and we can learn how to stop playing games with our relationship with God. But there's one last piece of evidence. Exhibit C, exhibit C, the third proof, and it's in Jesus himself. It's in Jesus himself. Jesus is the proof that God is not pacing around fuming about all your religious performance or lack thereof. And in, it's, it's tough to get there, but in verse 22 and 23, you have this kind of like the, the potential sentencing or, you know, listed, the potential uh, sentence listed. Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with no one to rescue you. Right there is, is the, the most difficult words of this psalm. I don't, you know, I would prefer not to have to go through the courtroom of those words, um, even as I stand here and talk about this psalm and talk about God. But there they are. Those words are right there. I will tear you to pieces with no one to rescue you. Have you ever... Maybe I'm just weird that I've done this, but... I, I've, I've heard of, of these horrible stories of people um, getting like attacked by a mountain lion or by a bear or something like that. And I, my mind has stopped and I think like, what would that be like? Like what would that actually, maybe those last few seconds of life before that, 
the terror, the loneliness, the absolute dread and hopelessness of, uh, of you know, like an, a lion or a grizzly bear, something that knows, that is, that is just wired to end your life, <laughs> right? They, and, and they, you know, when I was a kid, I kind of, uh, you watch cartoons, and I never would have, I would have thought, well, you just jump on the lion's back, and you like twist its head, or you, you know, punch it in the face, or something. Um, but, you know, no, uh-uh. You, you know, a grizzly bear versus you is going to win every time. This is, this, that kind of like terror, I mean, that's a terrifying thought. That's a, a little bit where my mind goes, that kind of just hellish hopelessness. I will tear you to pieces with no one to rescue you. And quite frankly, some of you and some of your friends are absolutely concerned that if we allow God to be God the judge, that that's where it's going to lead. That's the kind of terror, that's the reason why um, some people will hesitate to even listen to anything related to church or God or Jesus. And unfortunately, right, they've seen examples of Christians um, in our, you know, bigger family of the Christian church who have exhibited that kind of, I'm going to tear you to pieces if you don't fall in line. And some people have been torn to pieces, it feels like, and they're never coming back to give it a second try. I will tear you to pieces, but you know what? I have to say, as terrifying as those words are that, the, um, that they lead somewhere and that you... You can only, if you know this whole bigger story, there's only one way to look at that verse. Not that you are ever going to experience that, not that you are ever going to have to worry about experiencing anything like that from God, because the definitive uh, answer to that verse, the way that verse was fulfilled, actually, is in Jesus himself. When Jesus, um, on the night that he was betrayed, uh, in Gethsemane, prays this prayer, and he's prays three times, and his disciples leave him alone. They can't stay, stick around to pray with him. And he enters into the realization, the agony of what he's about to go through. And he, and he goes, I will tear you to pieces with no one to rescue you. And that's exactly where Jesus goes, God's son, in our place. Now, mate, take you some convincing, and maybe that's another sermon that, that he's in your place, that you needed, that you were deserving of getting torn to pieces, but we can argue that another time. But the Christian faith basically says the more you can put yourself into the place of deserving what Jesus uh, faced at the end of his life, the more you get the great love of God, the more you're going to be just catalyzed by this Jesus that he basically, when he was on the cross and he cried out and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That that is the cry of God's son being torn to pieces with no one to rescue him. So that you and I would never have to worry, not have to sit around and be scared that our relationship with God is somehow going to end that way. That's what we talk about here every week. That's what you're invited to grab hold of with your life. It takes a lifetime to cement it in. So if you're brand new to the Christian faith, you need this. If you've been in this for like 30 years, you need this just the same. You need to remember that this has been taken care of for you on the cross of Jesus. So God God is not some kind of you know, fly-off-the-handle judge who's going to throw his robe off and jump over the bench and start beating the defendant with the gavel. He's, he, in fact, he jumps over, embraces, and, and 
puts his hands behind his back and gets carried off for the sentencing. That's Jesus in your place. Let's pray. Dear God, will you free us from the ways that we wrongly view you? And will your grace pour out into our lives as we move towards the table of grace in a minute? Whether we're staying in our seats and seeing it happen or whether we get to come forward, may you especially move towards us in a mysterious and powerful way with your grace through the bread and the wine. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we uh,